Amen. Let us turn then to our reading of of the uh, confessions this evening, beginning with Lord's Day 9. Well, there's one question and answer in Lord's Day 9, so we're looking at Lord's Day 9, uh, question and answer 26. That's page 210 in the Smaller Forms and Prayers. Page 210 in the Forms and Prayers. Then we'll be turning to Isaiah 44. But we begin with Lord's Day 9, question and answer 26. It is a little longer, but we'll see if we can say the answer together. I'll read the question. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. It's the confessions that we hold in common. Let us turn now to the holy word of God. Isaiah chapter 44. And that is page uh, 769 in the Blue ESV Bibles under the seats. Page 769 in the ESV Bibles, Isaiah uh, chapter 44, the beginning of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And we'll be... Uh, reading, considering verses 21 to 28. Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 21, let us hear the word of God. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord 
who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So far the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are many prophecies in Scripture. There are only a few, uh, though more than just this one, where a person is specifically named long before they are ever born. Isaiah 44, verse 28 is one of those places. Cyrus, the Persian king, who God will use to restore his exiles to the promised land, he is named by the prophet Isaiah more than a hundred years before his birth. Now, as powerful as it is to read a prophecy which names a man before his birth and will name him again and go on to give a few more details about how God will use him in the first verses of chapter 45, that is not the the most powerful part of the promises of this portion of Isaiah. No, uh, even when we uh, see a beautiful and powerful prophecy such as that, and we will come to that in our third point, and we will consider it, and it does say something to us in a specific and powerful way when God names a person long before they're born. But what is what is most uh, gracious and merciful about this passage is something which is expressed over and over again in all kinds of ways, and that is the forgiveness of sins. And that also is plainly promised and declared to us in these verses, including uh, in uh, yet one more uh, illustration about what sin is and how God forgives sins. And it is a gracious and beautiful illustration for us to consider as we work through our text. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, whether it is uh, the powerful hand of God that is at work in the forgiveness of sins uh, or the powerful hand of of God that uh, knows all things past and present and future, uh, it is the hand of God which rules over all. And uh, that's our theme tonight. Almighty God's ruling hand is over all things. Uh, And then we're looking at God's forming hand, God's saving hand and God's ruling hand. So we begin with the forming hand. 
and if we uh, consider how God is the creator of all things and how God did not simply you know, create the world and then step back and, and let the world tick on and go on apart from his, his work and his power, uh, the way that the confessions summarize that reality is, is this, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, he still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. And that, that is the, the uh, chronological order. God first made it, and now he sustains it, he upholds it. Uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, speaks to us really in the opposite order. Uh, first, the prophet speaks to us about one of the ways that, that God continues uh, to be at work in his creation. And there's one thing specifically that the prophet makes mention of. There is one continued uh, upholding, sustaining work which the prophet is focused upon. And that's the forming of God's people. That's the uh, birth of God's special nation, God's people, O Jacob and Israel. And so the language of the text in verse 21 and then repeated again at the start of verse 24 is this, that God has formed the nation of Israel. He's formed them from the womb. The psalmist speaks to us of how each and every person is formed by God in the womb. Uh, but such is the active presence of God's sustaining power that it is not only each and every individual, but it is also whole nations. And specifically, God is present and active in a special way when he gives birth to his people, his nation. And that is, uh, that is the big Old Testament picture which is uh, found in smaller, more localized ways in the church in the New Testament. God is present in a special way in the building up of his churches, of his people groups. God is uh, sustaining all of this earth, but he is present, he is active, he is his hands at work in a specific and special way in the forming and sustaining power that he expresses with his people. Well, then the, the prophet moves to speak about all things. And so, again, the order is, is the opposite of what we see in 26. Uh, question answer 26. God created, then he sustains. Well, the prophet moves in the opposite order. After speaking about God's sustaining, forming hand in, in, in making the nation of Israel, now the prophet goes back in verse 24 to the very beginning and to the truth that God formed and made all things. Uh, and so uh, after we read again that uh, you formed uh, who you formed from the womb, now we get language of God's creative work in making all things from the beginning. I am the Lord, middle of verse 24, who made all things, who stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Now let's think about that. When do we say you know, I did that by myself. There are plenty of things on this earth that are too big uh, for us to, to make that statement. You know, there's, there's not many people on this earth who look at a house and say, well, I built that all by myself. That's the kind of project which is too big for, for one person to take on. Uh, even if I think of 
you know, of some homes that I know, uh, you know, built by my grandfather, built by my father-in-law, where they, they were mostly the ones who built it. You know, they mostly did it. They had help. They didn't build it all by themselves. Okay, so in human terms, we don't even we don't even say, you know, I built a house by myself. That's simply too much for us. And so it's usually not true. What does God say? God says, here is all of heaven and all of earth. This is all in an absolute sense. Remember, we saw that even this morning for those who are here. The word all, we're usually speaking about not absolutely everything. When I say um, all of the grass is cut or or uh, when someone says all of the laundry is done. What are, what are we talking about? We're talking about all of the laundry in one house. We're talking about all of the grass on one property. But God, when he speaks about making all, he's not speaking about one house. He's not speaking about one property. He's speaking about heaven and earth. And God can say, I did it all myself, by myself. This is, this is who God is. Contrast the things that that we might say, well, I did that by myself. And now contrast that with with God. And God comes and he says by his prophet, I made all things on heaven and earth. I did this by myself. God is almighty creator of heaven and earth. We are not the maker of heaven and earth. We cannot do this. And so, by asking the question, who, God is repeating, repeatedly reminding us that, that we are not God. Who formed? Who alone stretched? Who frustrates? Who turns? Who confirms? Who says? It is Almighty God. It is the maker of all that we see. And we are not God. So now God has made, He, he continues to, to form and, and, and be sustaining. But God's work is not only the work of making and sustaining. God has not uh, simply uh, continued his, his active work in, in uh, sustaining our physical life. God's hand is at work in salvation itself. And so that's our second point, God's saving hand. And that is uh, another truth beautifully expressed to us here by the prophet, even as that is uh, the very next direction that question answer 26 goes. So what do we say of this one who by himself created all heaven and earth and continues to sustain it? This one is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. Now, where do we see the saving hand of God in our text? Well, we need the saving hand of God because we are all sinners. And so as, as the scriptures remind us of that reality again and again, that's the context of the prophet Isaiah, verses 9 to 20, have just been another time when the uh, follies of idolatry and sin of the people have been, have been listed, have been exposed. But now having exposed their sins, having, uh, re- having reminded them of their, of their sinful actions and their need of God, God does not leave them in sin. He says this, verse 22, 
I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Now, as I said in the introduction, and we're going to get to Cyrus in our third point. And that's one of a few places when God's prophecy is so specific, he names a person long before that person is born. It's not the only time in Scripture we see that. It happens a few times. Josiah, for example, is named long before his birth. The forgiveness of sins is a truth which comes to us again and again and again. And God has given us so many beautiful pictures and expressions of his grace and mercy. Consider this picture here from the prophet. What are our sins like? What do our sins do? Our sin, our sin makes separation between us and God. That's what sin does. And so we could think of sin and rightfully from the point of view of man we could consider you know, a, an impenetrable wall or a great chasm. And from man's point of view those are accurate pictures of sin. They separate us from God. But what is the picture that the prophet has given to us? Does the prophet give us the picture of an unbreakable wall? Does the prophet give us a picture of an unpassable chasm? No, it's a cloud. It's a mist. Now that that does include the reality of separation. What does, a, what does a cloud do? It separates us from the light of the sun. It does, it does make a breach between heaven and earth. But it does not last. Do you ever see a cloud on a Wednesday morning and think, oh wow, that cloud is going to be there tomorrow morning? Do you ever see a mist and think, well, this mist is never going to go away? No. In fact, if something that kind of looks like a mist comes, we're surprised when it doesn't go away. You know, there was a conversation in the Freswick house. We had this poor air quality earlier this week. right? And it kind of looked like a mist. And so the first day that we had this poor air quality from all this smoke from the Canadian fires, there was a conversation in the Freswick house where my wife said, well, I saw, I saw that mist and then it just continued and it never went away. And I'm thinking, why is the mist not going away? And then I realized it's because it's not a mist, it's smoke. What is, what is that picture? What is that? That's what this is. When we see a mist, we do not expect it to remain forever. And if we think only from the point of view of man, the picture of separation is a forever separation. But that is not where God has left us. For the sake of Christ, take the language from the Catechism, and for the sake of Christ, which is the only way that the prophet can say these words, the prophet is not just looking 
150 years into the future and, and to the work of a pagan king that, that will be used to restore exiles. No, no, the, the prophet is looking 700 years to the future. He is looking to Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, our sin is not a permanent separation. In Christ, our sin is something which is rolled away which is burned away, which is totally gone. And in Christ, those, those things that make a real separation between heaven and earth are paid for and no more. And the full light of God's face shines upon us because of the work of Christ his eternal Son, our Savior. And so we read at the end of verse 22, return to me. It's a language for repentance. Turn to me. Turn away from your sins. Turn to me. For I have redeemed you. As you repent and as you trust in me, do not be concerned about your sins. They make real separation, but I remove it I take it away. It's like a mist that does not last. You are forgiven in Christ. And then what happens? When there is salvation for man, the whole earth rejoices. Now, look at that language in verse 23. This is not talking about creation. That's verse 24. Verse 23, when we have this language of the depths of the earth singing and the mountains and every tree in it, this is, this is not about creation. This is about the response of creation, of nature, to the salvation of man. Why is that? Because man, as the steward of creation, when we fell in our first parents, Adam and Eve, we threw ourselves into sin and death and despair and we brought all of creation under our stewardship with it. So what happens when God saves us and removes our sins from us? The whole earth celebrates because that brokenness can be restored, not just for us, but for all of earth that's under us. Or as uh, E.J. Young uh, said it, with taking some language from, uh, from Romans chapter 8, quote, All nature is bound up with the history of mankind as the curse affects it so that it groans, that's the language from Romans 8, and travails in pain, so also it is affected by the redemption of the human race. And the new heavens and the new earth are where God takes his redeemed people. And so when there is salvation for man, the whole earth sings. Well, now let's come to our third point, God's controlling hand. And where God not only delivers us from sin, but he also delivers his people from trouble uh, time and, and time again. And... Uh, this is uh, the language uh, in the uh, question and answer 26. I trust God so much that I do not doubt. He will provide whatever I need for body and soul. 
and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. And here we have from the prophet Isaiah uh, an overview of how God is going to be at work over the next two centuries and how God is going to turn the tears of his people and use that for its specific purpose and then how he's going to restore them and then even the specific king that he's going to use to shepherd them back. It's, it, is, it is a multi-layered uh, prophecy. Isaiah is speaking before Jerusalem's ever been destroyed, but he's already made prophecies about that. And so when he says Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, that's two prophecies. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed so that you're going to have to build it again. And uh, Isaiah the prophet, living long before Jeremiah or Ezekiel, uh, speaks already of these things. Uh, long before Jerusalem was ever destroyed, uh, Isaiah speaks about the truth that God will rebuild Jerusalem. Long before the exile, Isaiah speaks about the truth that she shall be inhabited again. And how is God going to do this? How will Jerusalem be built even if it looks impossible to man, it's not impossible with God. How is it that the cities of Judah, uh, towards the end of verse 26, shall be built? God says, I will raise up her ruins. Because who is God? Verse 27, God is the one who says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Prophet Isaiah is likely taking us back to the specific miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. For we've been reading about the forming of the nation of Israel and the birth of the nation of Israel in the earlier uh, parts of, of, of this prophecy and even this, this poem, verse 24 to 28 especially, is, is, is its own structured poem. And uh, Isaiah is saying, God brought birth to you, the nation of Israel. He even dried up the sea uh, to bring you forth and give birth to you. It looks impossible uh, when you come up to the Red Sea and you have the army of, of, of Egypt behind you. But what looks impossible to man is possible with God. And uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed, but I can restore it and I will rebuild it. And then there's, there's that name. God even tells them the king that will do it. Cyrus will be my instrument. Now, brothers and sisters, in the prophets, we're also told that Nebuchadnezzar is an instrument of God. But Nebuchadnezzar is not called a shepherd because Nebuchadnezzar was used for purposes of judgment. And so what is Nebuchadnezzar called? He's called, for example, in Ezekiel 21, a sword. Babylon will be God's sword to, to bring about what was needed at that time. What Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus both have in common is that they are God's instruments, rulers that God uses to bring about his purpose. And they also have this in common, that they are unbelievers 
we're, we're told that as God continues to speak about Cyrus in the beginning of chapter uh, 45. Look at the end of verse 4 and the end of verse 5 of Isaiah 45. I call you by name, I name you, though you do not know me. And then verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is called a sword. Cyrus is called a shepherd. They're both unbelievers. They're both used by God. Now let's take this down from the national level. You know, kings whom God is using in his work to uh, discipline, but then to restore his nation of Israel. Let's take this down from the national level and let's take this down from the centuries that Isaiah is looking over and let's bring this down to the personal level. And let's maybe even think of it in terms of, of days or, well, you could think of it in terms of your whole life. Are there unbelievers that are a sword in your life? Are there unbelievers who have harmed you? Well, God may use that in various ways. He may use that to remind you that you live in a veil of tears. He may use it for other purposes as well. I'm going to stop there because each situation is different. Has God used unbelievers as shepherds in your life? Has some of the greatest and most impactful acts of kindness that have ever been done to you been done by unbelievers? Well, that's certainly possible. Because what does God do? God controls all things. God even controls the pagan kings. And he can use the cruelty of pagan kings to be a sword for, for various reasons. God can use pagan kings, God can use pagan unbelieving people as shepherds to help us, be kind to us, to bring us through and out of difficult situations. The, the whole line of thinking that says, well, you know, Christians are not always the nicest people on the world. Christians haven't always done the best things in the world. Well, well that's true because Christians are still sinners struggling on this earth. And um, the line of thinking that says, well, so-and-so can't, you know, they, they deny God. But, uh, you know, I, I can't believe that they're going to be judged by God. They're just... You know, they're so kind. They did something so wonderful for me. And all, there's 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 many different forms for lines of thinking like that. And what does the prophet Isaiah say? The prophet Isaiah says, God can use unbelievers as swords or as shepherds. God can use Cyrus, though Cyrus does not know me. But but who is it who is controlling all things? 
Uh, who is it that brings us uh, into and out of trial in his own way, in all kinds of different ways? It is the Lord God. It is the Lord God. He is in control of all things. And so as we go through this veil of tears, whether we have more Nebuchadnezzars or Cyruses along the way in our own lives, whatever it is, it is not haphazard. It is not outside of God's control. It is all under His control. So you see, Isaiah is on a national level and over the course of centuries expressing the truth that the Apostle Paul takes down to the personal level for every single believer these words which may be familiar to you from Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be among the, first, the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It is our Creator who is also our Father who is over all these things. And so we do not doubt His care. We do not doubt His ability. He is able to do this because He is Almighty God. He desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, carry us, we pray, through uh, the wilderness times, through the exile times, through this veil of tears. And Lord, uh, strengthen us.